Are you feeling terrible about something you did? Do you feel horrible about who you are? These are the deadly symptoms of guilt and shame. And God wants you cured of them today. Get ready to receive the great physician's prescription. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I'm Kyle Winkler, here to shut down the enemy's lies in your life. I do it live on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org slash live, and I'd love for you to join us live sometime. We'd love to have you. I know that you've experienced what I'm about to describe. You messed up. You did something you know is wrong. And depending on what it is, after the thrill of it wore off, you were left with a tight feeling in your chest and nervousness in the pit of your stomach and thoughts running through your mind of how could you? You know better. And now you're burdened by what you must do to make up for it, how you have to suffer and sacrifice. Come on, you know what I'm talking about, right? And if you're a Christian, there's a good chance that you feel like, at least for a little while, that you can't talk to God like you used to, or that you can't do something spiritual. Maybe you're on a prayer team and you think, I'm not good enough to be part of it this week. Or maybe you're on a worship team and you think, I got to call out sick. I'm not clean enough to lead anyone in worship. Maybe you completely go silent about your faith, thinking, who am I to be even talking about this? These are just a few of the toxic products of guilt and shame, which along with fear are the oldest and most common negative emotions. They go all the way back to the beginning and so do their results. After Adam and Eve's first sin, the Bible says that they instantly felt bad. They felt shame. It made them hide from God. That result didn't change some 4,000 years later. In the New Testament, after Judas betrayed Jesus, he felt guilt and shame for what he did, and he took his life. After Peter denied Jesus three times, he felt horrible for what he did. The Bible says that he wept bitterly. We really don't hear from Peter for a while after that. To me, it sounds like he got into a funk of depression. So whether it's Adam and Eve hiding from God, or Judas taking his life, or Peter feeling horrible about himself, over a span of 4,000 years, guilt and shame never, never, never produced anything good. And nothing's changed some 2,000 years later. I'd say guilt and shame still make up the enemy's deadliest symptoms. Symptoms that are aimed to shut us up and shut us down. And this is why God went to the most extreme lengths to deliver people from guilt and shame. We'll get to the specifics of what he did, but first let me kind of tease out these two words for a few minutes here. Most people confuse the two words, guilt and shame, or they think of them as synonymous with each other. And yeah, it's true that they share some qualities in common. There are some important differences though. Guilt is feeling that you did something wrong. Guilt says, I feel horrible because I did wrong. 
I blew my diet by binging on candy corn. Not only do I feel physically sick, but I feel awful morally for doing it. Now I'm revealing some of my secrets from this week, actually. Or how about something not so personal to me, at least? I lost it on my kids. You get the point, right? Guilt is doing something against your code of ethics. Shame, on the other hand, is the feeling that your whole self is wrong. It could have started with some event or behavior that you felt guilty about. But ultimately, shame says, I am wrong, or I am hopeless and horrible. Something like that. It's an identity. Like I said, it often starts with guilt. I blew this diet. But then it goes further. It says something about you. I blew this diet because I'm bad. Or I yelled at my kids because I'm a terrible parent. Or therefore I'm a terrible parent. Or therefore I'm bad. Always something to do with you. But whereas guilt always has to do with something you've done, shame doesn't always have to do with something you've done or something you perceive that you've done. Sometimes guilt is a perception too. It's not something you actually did, but you think you did it. But shame doesn't always have to be based on that. It can come from something you didn't choose for yourself. People can feel ashamed to have come from a certain family or from a certain social class or a certain experience or disability or symptom that is no fault of their own. I've known too many Christians who are afraid to admit to their Christian friends when they are sick. They're afraid that the sickness means that they don't have enough faith, which is an absolute lie. One, though, that's rampant, unfortunately, in the church world. But it's not just about sickness. It can be about many experiences. Many Christians are afraid to mention they battle depression or anxiety because it might be perceived that something is wrong with them spiritually. I was talking with some people recently who have some medical or mental conditions, legitimate mental conditions, one of the many products of the fallen world, and they can't tell anyone at their church because their church will think they are demonically possessed. That's shame. And if I have to spell it out for you, S-T-U-P-I-D, that's stupid and sad. The church is not a membership of perfect people. It's not really a membership of any kind of people except for loved people who believe Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did. Yet we create all these man-made litmus tests that you have to look like this or think like this or sound like this, otherwise you aren't spiritual enough or don't have enough faith or you're possessed or something. And then we wonder why people aren't getting freed and healed. With all of our rules and expectations, we've created a system by which the only way to fit in is to be fake. And fakes can't be freed. Pretend people can't be healed. Only real people can be healed. I totally went on a rant there. But let me come back to center here. Guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. 
Guilt tends to cause fear of punishment or the need to pay. Shame causes you to feel inferior or incompetent and that you need to hide or disappear and go away. Both are destructive, but both are cured by the gospel. Let me show you why and how to apply the gospel to these conditions so that it works as the great physician intended. I'm going to spend most of my time on guilt because it is at the foundation of shame. And when you get what the gospel says down about guilt, it's a whole lot easier to get what it says about shame. So as I said a few minutes ago, what you feel bad about doing, what makes you guilty, really depends upon your code of ethics. Now, I think humans have a kind of pre-programmed code of ethics. You might call this a conscience. You could call this the knowledge of good and evil. You don't have to be a Christian to have this knowledge. It came as a result of Adam and Eve's fall in the beginning. You know, God wanted us just to know good. But when they ate the forbidden fruit, they received the knowledge of good and evil. And so they immediately recognized when they did wrong and then immediately felt wrong. So we continue to have that same experience, knowledge of good and evil. They got guilt, then they experienced shame. That's usually the progression. So some of the obvious things that are programmed into us include a value for life, not to hurt people or take from people. But then culture has its own set of ethics that we learn, like speed limits and age limits. Different cultures have different ones. There are religious rules, too. The most common, I'd say, are the Ten Commandments. But remember, the Ten Commandments are just the first ten of 613 laws that were given to Moses for the Jewish people. They're part of what's called the law. And beyond spelling out rules such as thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not kill, the law includes things like not eating shellfish, pork, borrowing with interest, wearing clothing made of two different fabrics, working on the Sabbath, on and on and on and on. Well, whether it's something from your conscience, the culture, or religion, what do most Christians call a failure to follow or fulfill any one of these ethics? Christians call it a sin, right? And how do most Christians feel after a sin? Guilty. But does God want you to feel this way even after you may have failed very deliberately? No. For all the reasons we saw in the stories of Adam and Eve, Judas and Peter, guilt doesn't heal, it doesn't produce, it destroys. This is why every example in Scripture illustrates that God wants to deliver people from guilt. That's why he pursued Adam and Eve in the garden. It's why the law spelled out guilt offerings. It's why Jesus came and died. Deliverance from guilt is part of the deliverance we receive that is salvation. It's a product of the gospel, and it does it in a few ways. The first thing that the gospel clears you of is having to keep at least 613 rules starting with the Ten Commandments. Now, I know hearing that is scary to some people, but stay with me, please, and hear me out. The Law of Moses was written to Jewish people. 
most of you are not Jewish, you are Gentile. So by default, those laws weren't intended for you. By reading the law, you were reading somebody else's mail. But even if you are Jewish, the Bible is clear that Jesus fulfilled the law's requirements because you couldn't. Jesus said it himself. Look at Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Other translations say to fulfill it. And to this, some people will say, see, Kyle, Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. And I agree. He didn't erase it. It's still printed in our Bibles, after all. But what's it there for? Not as instructions for you to live by today. It's there to do what it was ultimately always meant to do to reveal to people that they can't live perfectly and therefore need a Savior. Well, Jesus came as that Savior. And in doing so, he accomplished or fulfilled the law, and he did all the sacrificing necessary for it. The Apostle Paul expounded upon this to the Romans. In Romans 10.4, he said, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Now, the Romans weren't Jewish, but he was explaining to them why they didn't need to come under Jewish law in order to be right with God, because Jesus did it for them. And everyone else who believes, as Paul says there, and that includes you and me some 2,000 years later. So there's so much more to say when it comes to the law and Jesus fulfilling it. In your own time, I encourage you to continue reading there in Romans 10. But one more verse about this from Paul, and this time to the Galatians. In Galatians 3.24, he said, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. It's pretty clear from Jesus and Paul, obeying the law doesn't achieve anything for us. Today, you can think of it like a mortgage note that says paid in full. You can see that there was a history of required payments. But you can also see the good news that it was all paid so that you don't have to continue paying it. So what the gospel means is that you are freed from the guilt of failing the rules in the law. It's not for you. It's fulfilled. Now, does that mean it's okay to lie or cheat or steal or worse? No. The gospel certainly doesn't absolve you from natural consequences or human consequences. It doesn't mean you can eat as much as you want and not gain weight. It doesn't mean you can cheat on someone and not get a Louisville slugger taken to your headlights or your tires slashed or yourself divorced. It doesn't mean you can steal or hurt somebody and not go to prison. It doesn't mean everything is good for you or that anything goes or that God doesn't have standards. Christianity isn't lawlessness. There is a kind of law that we are under today, though I don't 
even like the word under because it sounds like a burden and it's not a burden. It's God's law of love. But this law isn't a code of conduct written in stone or even on paper. It's a life led by the Spirit written on your heart that naturally loves God and loves people and everything that comes with that. You know, as Jesus said, when it comes to behavior, everything that God wants is covered by loving Him and loving people. Paul said the same thing in Romans 13, 8. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill God's requirements. John said it too, 1 John 3, 23. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Love covers all. Lying, cheating, stealing. Love values life, including your own. And love empowers all. A lot of people are trying to be obedient to God in their own willpower, with their own flesh. Good luck with that. The flesh has no power to please God. It's corrupted. Flesh couldn't obey God before salvation. Flesh can't obey God after salvation. The only way to obey anything and to live a holy life is to be empowered by God's love. In Ephesians 3, Paul encourages that you experience the love of Christ then you will be made full and made complete with all the life and the power that comes from God, he says. Don't depend on your flesh to do right. Empowerment comes from God's Spirit in you and God's love for you. And when your flesh fails, which Jesus said it will, he said the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When your flesh fails, don't get caught up in guilt. The second way that the gospel delivers from guilt is that it promises that you are forgiven. And not just of past things, but of future things. And not just until your next sin either. But you remain a forgiven person. I'm going to walk you through some New Testament verses here to show you the consistent theme of this. Got a little cheat sheet here so that we're not flipping through Scripture so fast here. We'll start with Jesus' cousin John, John the Baptist, prophesying of what Jesus would do in John 1.29. He proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus affirmed himself what he came to do during the Last Supper in Matthew 26, 28, he said, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Speaking of this new covenant, the effects of it are what the Apostle Paul affirmed are a result of the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5, 19, he said, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. In 1 John 1, 9, the Apostle John said, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. That's talking about salvation, that we remain cleansed after we admit our sin. And we know this even more because just a few verses later, John said, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. The author of Hebrews said the same. Look at Hebrews 10, 
too. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. At least five different people in the New Testament all say the same thing. You are forgiven. God no longer holds sin against you. So, don't live guilty. Live loved. Now, I know that some of you are asking, you're wondering, is this a license to sin or a reason to be callous or careless about sin? I'm going to get to those questions in a minute. But to set the stage for my answers to them, you have to know that salvation isn't just forgiveness, but it's an exchanged identity. It's a new nature. The gospel says that on the cross, Jesus took your sin, and with your belief, you received his identity. This changed identity is the cure for shame. Forgiveness is the cure for guilt. The other part of salvation, the changed identity, is the cure for shame. Remember, shame is the feeling or fear that I am wrong. Well, the gospel assures that Jesus made you right. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin took on our sin so we could be made right with God in Christ. Romans 3.22, all who believe are made right with God. The gospel assures that even though you might feel a certain way or look a way or sound a way or whatever, you are not how you feel, what you fear, how you fall. You aren't your symptoms, your sickness, your disability, or your experiences. But you are as Jesus is, which is clean complete, whole, and holy. It's as I often say, Christ writes you despite you. You don't have a sin nature, you have a new nature. This is why the Bible doesn't call you your own handiwork as if this is something you produce yourself or perform yourself. It calls you God's handiwork because all of this is done through his spirit. Now, knowing all of this is going to help answer some of those questions that I said that I know that you have. The most popular one, is this a license to sin? No, it's not permission to sin. But it is permission to be imperfect. And it is a license to be loved as a human being who every day falls short. You know, the ways of God are always opposite of the ways of the world and often the ways of the church world. Both don't seem to understand this in many cases. But the gospel truth is that humans do better in an environment of grace. When you know that you are loved, you do better than when you fear that you aren't. The gospel truth is that you grow in godliness when you know that you are forgiven and clean. The Apostle Peter said that you don't grow in godliness because you've forgotten your cleansing. So remember your cleansing and you will start to live holier automatically than you ever will on purpose. Live in the empowerment of your new nature. You'll sin less when you think less about your sin and more about your forgiveness. I go into this in my next book, Permission to be Imperfect. But this is why skiers, pilots, people that need to make quick maneuvers, they're told, not to focus on the trees, the telephone poles, or the buildings that they don't want to hit. That's because they'll hit what they focus on. They're told instead to focus on the path in front of them. 
And it's the same with the Christian life. It ought to be Christianity 101. If you remain sin conscious with all the guilt that comes from it, thinking about, I can't do this, I can't do this, oh, I'm horrible because I did this, you're just going to continue to sin. So think about love and grace. I know it might sound backward, but how has the other way worked for you? How has feeling bad worked for you? It hasn't worked, has it? So why not give God's way a chance? Don't live guilty. Don't live shamed. Live loved. Live as the new person you are. Clean, complete, whole, and holy. The second question you might have is, is this some kind of message promoting carelessness about sin? And it's not. Just because I'm telling you not to feel guilty or not to feel shamed isn't saying that you should want to do it. It isn't saying that you should not care about doing it. The new nature that you received at your salvation doesn't want to sin. We do it at times, but who of you want to do it? No, the message I get from a lot of you are, help me, I don't want to do this anymore. Well, because your new nature is not programmed for sin, it's programmed for righteousness, slaves to righteousness, this is why you will feel sorry at times when you mess up. It's not a bad thing. Paul said there's such a thing as godly sorrow. Godly sorrow might sound like, I don't like what I did. And that acknowledgement, Paul said, can lead to repentance, which is to change your mind to say, I don't want to do what I did. Nothing wrong with that. So long as it doesn't morph into, I'm not forgiven, I'm awful, I must pay, God probably can't love me. You can think, I don't like what I did, but I know that I'm loved. Separate your who from your do and move on in the joy of your salvation. This is what worked to get Adam and Eve out of their hiding. God provided them a covering, an animal skin. Back then, that was a foreshadowing of what he later provided all of us through Jesus with a key difference. What Jesus did is so much better than anything any animal sacrifice could do. What Jesus did provided more than a temporary covering. He provided a permanent cleansing and a new nature. So we don't have to live guilty. We can get beyond that and live in the empowerment of our new nature. This was Peter's story too. After he denied Jesus three times, wept bitterly, caught up in depression, Jesus pursued him to tell him that the plan is still in place. He told Peter to get on with being the rock that he previously told him that he is. Get on with your identity, with your new identity. And he did. And I'm telling you, you can do the same. You aren't being held to the law of Moses. So you can stop feeling guilty about that tattoo that you got on that spring break dinner in Panama City when you were younger. You can stop feeling guilty about that few times you missed church this year. You can stop feeling guilty about that relationship failure. 
you can stop feeling guilty that you haven't told everyone you possibly can about Jesus. Or that you didn't pray for every server who ever waited on you at the restaurant. You can stop feeling guilty that you weren't a better parent to your kids or a better kid to your parent. You aren't being held to any command written in stone or on paper. You're being held to God's law of love. Love God, love people. That includes loving yourself. And that's empowered by the Spirit, not willpower. Trust the Spirit to direct you and empower you on the specifics of all of that for your life. And when your flesh fails to do what you don't want to do, what you know better than to do, don't beat yourself up. Don't get into guilt. Don't get into shame. Remember that your sins are forgiven and you, you have a new nature. You are clean. You are new. So go be who God says that you are. Okay. You know, the Bible says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In other words, it's the power of God to deliver. That word deliver is a big word and a lot has been made of it these days. A lot that has ironically and sadly caused people more bondage and more burden, not more deliverance, not more freedom. Whatever the issue in your life, you can get free and stay free much more easily than perhaps you know or were told. To help you, I created my new teaching series, The Secrets of Deliverance. Four messages in this audio series include The Devil in Disguise, Deliverance 101, Oops, I Did It Again, and Knocking Down Strongholds. This is about two hours of teaching on four MP3s where I walk you through everything you need to know or maybe weren't told or were told wrongly about deliverance. This is going to free you. Get the series instantly at kylewinkler.org slash deliverance. That's kylewinkler.org slash deliverance. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil Show. Remember, God is good and he is for you. And we're here for you too every week on my website at kylewinkler.org, on our podcast, and wherever you get social media. Don't forget wherever you're watching or listening to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. I'll see you next time.